Welcome to the Move Forward Podcast with Dr. Kim Moss. We are here to move you forward in the call of God for your life, your career, and your ministry through prophetic insight, practical teaching, and powerful conversations with influential leaders. Never throw away your confidence. It is time to move forward. Well, hey, everybody, welcome to the Move Forward podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Kim Moss, and we are back again this week with two of my very favorite friends, Ken Fish and Adam Knapp. Now, last week, I told you Adam Knapp is a pastor on the leadership team of The Branch, North Carolina, located in Apex Cary, North Carolina. He's married to Lisa. They have five beautiful children together. He's a graduate of Liberty Baptist Theological Seminary with an MDiv in Theological Studies. His heart is to equip the body of Christ for the work of the ministry and to help bring believers into the fullness of Jesus Christ. Ken Fish is the founder of Orbis Ministries, formerly known as Kingdom Fire Ministries. He is a native of the Los Angeles area and an honors graduate from Princeton University with a degree in history and philosophy of religion. He subsequently earned his Master of Divinity degree from Fuller Theological Seminary with an emphasis in theological and intercultural communications. Say that five times. Ken had (laughs) a 25 year career as a Fortune 500 executive after earning an MBA in finance from UCLA's Anderson Graduate School of Management. Throughout his life, Ken has worked with parachurch ministries and in the church. In the 1980s, he worked full-time for John Wimber for several years at Vineyard Ministries International. Since 2010, his ministry has taken him to over 40 countries on all six inhabited continents. I think I said that wrong. Six on all six inhabited continents, working alongside churches of varying denominations and great diversity. Ken's work includes vision casting, teaching on leadership, equipping the saints in healing, prophecy, and deliverance to further the advance of the kingdom of God and release fresh anointing in the midst of visitation. He has worked alongside national leaders in many countries. He's led training events for the International Association of Healing Rooms in different parts of the U.S. and been interviewed on nationally syndicated radio and television shows such as the Eric Metaxas Show and Premier Christianity. He also hosts his own podcast, God is Not a Theory. His meetings are often accompanied by manifest signs and wonders that include prophetic ministry and healing of many types. Ken and Adam, thank you for joining me for another week on Move Forward. So exciting. Great to be back. Thanks for having me. (laughs) having Thanks for having us together. Yeah, Yeah, how fun is that? We have been really having some great conversations on and off uh, audios. And so I'm really excited for today. Um, I think that we've been having a really important conversation about prophets and the prophetic movement. Important because really we have an opportunity right now in our generation. I think every generation is afforded an opportunity by God to make course corrections when they sort of, you know, get off track a little bit. And I think that we find ourselves here in the church and especially in the prophetic movement. I know that we all uh, have a great love and respect for the prophetic movement. So that's why we are talking about these things. Last week, we had a great conversation. If you're listening this week for the first time, you didn't catch last week's conversation. I encourage you to go back uh, to the Move Forward podcast from last week, um, or you can actually catch it on the YouTube channel, Kim Moss Ministries YouTube channel, and see uh, the three of them and see what they look like too and match their voice to their face. Um, But we've been talking about 
prophecy and in particular prophets we talked about last week. How did we get here and what are some of the issues that we have seen in getting us to this place where we need a course correction. And I don't want to go back over that. I want to start fresh uh, today with the next question that's been on my heart. And, you know, that really is how do we clear up the confusion regarding gift versus calling? I think that most those who have been trained at all in the prophetic, one of the first things they learn is that there's a difference between the gift and the call. The gift, of course, comes with the Holy Spirit that's been poured out and uh, was released on the day of Pentecost and is part of what we have received from Jesus and um, and is for every believer. So we believe that the gift comes with, with the release and the infilling of the Holy Spirit and is activated by the Holy Spirit in our lives. Um, but that doesn't mean that you have a call as a prophet. That's a really a whole different thing. So, um, Adam, I'm going to start with you. I want to know um, what is the difference? How do you and how do you know if you have a call as a prophet? What is the there? There is sort of a progression in that, and uh, and I know that you have a really great answer to that. So, I'd like to hear from you on that. Um, I, I think this is probably the the question that plagues most of the charismatic prophetic movement is, you know, well, I had this sort of operating gift. I went to this activation school. I've done this. I've done that. And and I and I pretty regularly hear from God. So like, what am I? Well, I must be a prophet. And I think the danger in that is that we, we don't recognize the distinction between the gift of prophecy, which is given by the Holy Spirit to believers, and the call of a prophet, which is given by Christ to his church. Right. Paul goes through and he talks about are all prophets are all apostles. And he's saying no in First Corinthians 12. However, then he talks about desiring after the gifts, but he doesn't talk about desiring after those other roles. Correct. And so then you get to, to Christ in, in Ephesians and he says, and Jesus has given these to the church for this purpose. Now, the problem is, how do I know the difference? Right. Because I, I, I've met people that that, you know, would swear they're a prophet. And, and if you look for markers, what are, you know, what are the question would be, what are the markers in scripture? And that's what we've been discussing. I believe there are four. Most people know three, and, and I feel like there's a fourth one. And I think Paul is our example, okay? The reason I think Paul is our example is he becomes sort of this additional apostle, this additional voice that's not with Jesus in the beginning, right? There's a distinction there. He's not with, he's in opposition. So with him, we get to see someone who comes into faith as a non-believer, right? And he goes through this process. And so there we have, as Paul gets called on the Damascus road, this is that initial calling. Everyone, any person I've ever met that swears they're a prophet usually is going to point to some time in prayer, some time at the altar, something where God said to them, I've called you to this role. Okay, it's esoteric. It can't really be judged. It's really hard to prove whether that's true or not because it's just between you and God. The second mark we see in Acts, and we see this when Barnabas begins to seek Saul out, right? He goes out to Tarsus. He goes to find him. At this point, nobody else really recognizes him. Nobody's seeing the call in his life. He's presented him in Jerusalem when, when Saul first showed up, and now he's going to find him. And this idea of going to seek out someone or, or recognizing this gift on him, which Barnabas does, and if you don't notice this, Barnabas is really a prophet. He's operating as a prophetic voice, and he's seeing a calling on Saul. He goes and he brings him out. This is what happens at your conferences, you know, at your home church, this traveling you know, itinerant minister comes in, and some prophet comes in, and they call you out, and they say, you know, daughter or son, there's a call to be a prophet over your life, right? 
that's usually the thing everybody else has. They have one of two. So they have the personal calling, then they have like the called out moment by some established voice. Okay, well then in Acts 13, we see the third mark. And this is what happens, and this is where most people actually don't mature in. So there's the, there's the calling, there's the affirmation of the call, you know, the, the people say, hey, we see this, and this is over your life. But then there's the maturing of the call. That happens in Antioch for Saul amongst brethren he, he's in community they're seeing each other they're recognizing each other and then it says the holy spirit said to us and it says at that time there were prophets and teachers present separate for us saul and barnabas to the work of the apostle right so they, they're going to move them into a, you know an apostolic work but this comes on through the laying of the hands prayer and fasting within the local community this is the presbytery like dynamic and i believe that the third mark and this is where most people stop or they don't actually stay com committed enough to community to mature into this is that your community is going to lay hands on you and recognize this calling they're going to say we receive you as a prophet we receive you in the role that you're called to whatever fivefold calling right now this is the other tricky thing because there's a lot of prophets that are like no i'm called out to here but it's like yeah but you, there has to be a place in which there's a maturing that goes on and that's within the family of god that's with fathers and brothers and sisters and mothers around you to help you mature. The final mark, and then I'll be quiet for a bit here, is it says in Galatians 1 and 2 that Paul goes back to Jerusalem. And he presents the gospel that he preached to make sure he hadn't preached in vain to those he perceived to be pillars, Peter, James, and John. So he takes all of that ministry, right? His own personal call on Damascus, and the fact that Barnabas sought him out, the fact that Antioch received him, and he still goes back and he says, hey, fathers in Jerusalem, is this is this the real thing is this right and i believe that's the final mark that many i have not considered is are you received by the fathers and those that are established in the faith so so you mean that just because i get on uh social media and tell people i'm a prophet and give some general prophetic words uh doesn't necessarily mean i'm a prophet I think social media is the single worst litmus test to determine anything about prophetic validity. <laughs> I agree too, because I don't think there's any uh, accountability, which we're going to get to in a little bit. But um, Ken, I wanted to ask you about um, what what actually is the ministry of a New Testament prophet. So let's say that we have gone through all four of those litmus tests that that you have just laid out for us, um, Adam and and. And actually, personally, I've had all four of those. I know that you both also have had that. So, um, and so tell us, let's talk about what does it mean to have an office? You know, I think there's a lot of confusion in that. I think that some, I've heard lots of different things, honestly. I've heard from various uh, prophetic teachers and voices and, and teachers that are not prophets also that talk about levels of prophetic ministry and your it's all prophet, you know, like you're all prophet. If you just have a gift of prophecy and you prophesy, or if you have a prophetic ministry, or if you've started a prophetic uh, um, core group or company, let's say, um, or, you know, or you have, and that's all in office. Some I've heard, I've heard some people say that if you have an office, you have an Ephesians for government gift. And, and then I've heard other prophets uh, say to me, uh, no, that doesn't mean you have a government gift. And, uh, and fivefold, of course, is, is, has everything to do with function, but has nothing to do with levels of authority and office. And uh, so can you speak to that a little bit? Can you help 
that's a humongous topic. And I know we could talk about that for a couple of hours, but, but I trust that you can give it to us in a nutshell, Ken. So let's hear, let's hear from you. And Adam, if you have anything to add on that, please, uh, I want to hear. Yeah. Well, the way I like to think about this is gift ministry office. And in your opening remarks, Kim, you mentioned gift and office, but you left out this intermediate stage of ministry. Anybody in the body of Christ can function in the gift of prophecy, period. The scripture makes that clear. Paul even says you can all prophesy in uh, 1 Corinthians 14. And um, on top of that, if we actually look at the coming of the Holy Spirit on people in both Old and New Testament, I'm going to offend most of the Pentecostals who might be listening to this, but the one common theme that always recurs is prophecy, not tongues. Yeah, true. Now, th this raises a very interesting question. Why Classical Pentecostals. Yeah, You're attending the, the classical right. Pentecostals. Okay. But this, this raises a really interesting question. Why prophecy? And the answer is actually very simple. And if you think about it, it, it makes complete sense. In old Israel, um, everybody presumably was speaking Israel, uh, Israel, speaking Israel, speaking Hebrew. So if you were going to bring the word of the Lord, you logically would have been bringing it in Hebrew. There was no need for any other language to be involved. And tongues has kind of taken on its own, I don't know, it has an aura around it. I don't mean in a new age sense, but there's, a, there's kind of a buzz around this idea of tongues. When I teach on this, I usually deliberately say the gift of languages because it's my belief that these things that we call tongues are in fact languages. Tongue in this case doesn't mean what I'm using to form words as I'm speaking right now, a tongue, that's a, that's a King James English term meaning languages. So literally in context, the gift of tongues means the gift of languages. And in Acts 2, it is clear that there are 15 at least different nationalities and language groups who are hearing the, the word of the Lord proclaimed in their language. So query, why is tongues a big thing in the New Testament? Answer, because inclusion into the family of God is now going beyond the family of the Hebrews, the family of the Jews, to anybody who believes in Jesus. And the coming of the Holy Spirit in multiple languages, I'm not going to use the word tongues now, the coming of the Holy Spirit in multiple languages, this is an indication that the door is open for all people of all races, of all languages, on all continents, everywhere, the door is open. That's what this means. So now that we've kind of laid that out, this, this simple gift of prophecy, and with it, this gift of languages that we usually call tongues. Um, and by the way, let me just say parenthetically and not dwell on it. I've had numerous meetings in which tongues have been given where there were recognized languages and the speakers of those languages translated the tongue or prophetic word given in another language that was given, they didn't interpret it, they translated it because it was in proper format. And on various occasions, I've had this happen with me, one very notable case, and it's the only one I'll, I'll mention. I was ministering in Australia, I gave, a, I was praying for someone, I was speaking in what I thought was a tongue, as we call it, 
And afterward, the pastor called me and said, where did you learn to speak Arabic? And I said, I don't speak Arabic. And he said, well, she was from Lebanon and you were speaking in fluent Arabic to her in her dialect from her Druze village. And she wanted me to call you and talk to you about this. So I, I know this to be true. I've had other cases where other languages have come to people who were receiving the Holy Spirit and native speakers of that language were present and they were translating the, the thing that that person was saying. So all of this to say this simple gift of prophecy in whichever language it comes, this is available to anybody if they are filled with the Holy Spirit, if they are a believer. Okay, that's the gift. The ministry is just when you start to do this enough and you start having other supernatural experiences, visions, whatever, dreams, etc. Um, there could be more, but it happens often enough that people start to say, hmm, this is occurring with some regularity. This kind of marks this person's life. That's a ministry. When we move to the office, at least in the Old Testament, and I said in our last episode where we were talking about this, that the only template, the only model that the early communities of faith had was the Old Testament. Uh, the only model they had for prophecy comes out of the Old Testament because that was the scriptures at that time before the New Testament got written. And at least as it pertains to the office of prophet, for the most part, as near as we can tell, uh, prophets in the Old Testament have a distinct and unique calling experience. Adam was just referencing this. It tends to be internal. It's a little bit hard to validate. But these prophets would often speak of their calling experience as a point of validating what they were doing. So, for example, Isaiah, he, he was in a prophetic ministry, apparently, in chapters 1 to 5. But in chapter 6, he goes into the temple he has a transcendent experience, and he is called now and sent with a message. And the message is, tell the people that all flesh is grass and all of their glory will fade and wither. And Isaiah says, how long am I supposed to preach that message? And the voice in the temple says, until the cities lie desolate and there is no one left to hear it. All right, that's Isaiah's calling. Jeremiah says, the word of the Lord came to him, and he says, I'm just a youth. I'm not qualified. but..." The Lord says, you go to who I tell you to go to and don't tell me you're too young. Uh, Moses, he has his calling experience in the burning bush. I'm a little out of sequence with throwing Moses in there. but And Moses tries to get away from it just as Jeremiah did. Ezekiel, he's living by the, the Kebar Canal uh, with the exiles. He looks away to the north and he sees this transcendent vision of God. Amos says that he was not a prophet nor the son of a prophet, but God took him from tending the flock and said, go prophesy to my people Israel. And he does say in Amos 9 that he saw the Lord standing in the temple by the pillars that were holding the temple up. So most of them have something like that. Malachi doesn't detail it, but something, the community obviously recognized something was going on with Malachi or his words would have never been inscripturated. Joel, he has a really powerful vision. It's not clear if that vision is the calling vision or it's just one of his visions, but because Joel doesn't really articulate his calling vision, but the majority of them do have this kind of thing. And so it seems to me that if people are moving into the office of prophet, um, most commonly, but I don't wanna say universally, I'll stop a little short of that, but most commonly they will have had something happen that 
you know, decisively shifted them. And whether it was a vision, an angelic visitation, perhaps a visitation by Jesus himself, um, he certainly, you know, it seems to be that one of the marks to be called as an apostle, Paul says, have I not seen the risen Christ? Well, okay, so there you go. Um, that might be another way that this could occur. I think there might be yet some others beyond those big three, but we'll stop with, uh, you know, transcendent vision, angels, and Jesus. That's enough for now. <laughs> I think uh, I think that's really true. So I, what I want to get into is what what separates the the role and the ministry of someone who simply is operating in the gift versus someone who's operating operating in the office. Oh, and I forgot to address that. So here, here, here's a way to think about this. In okay. the Middle Ages, there were people called anchorites, and they were pretty much universally prophets, or at least prophetic. I, I want to be careful with my language because I've just defined it. They were prophetic. And so an anchorite was, well, anchored. And what they would do is they would build a little room. They called it a cell just outside the outside wall of a church. And they would literally wall the wall that person in and they would, you know, feed them food. They'd give them a slop bucket and they'd take that away so they could relieve themselves. Um, every now and then they'd give them some water so they could bathe, but they didn't really have anything in there except a table and a chair, and they spent their whole time praying. But if you needed a word, you could go down to the church, find the anchorite, and the anchorite would talk to you through their little you know, slot, their little portal, but they couldn't get out. They were literally walled in. If they wanted to get an anchorite out, they had to literally break the thing down and bring out a mason to repair the wall later. Okay, anchorites had prophetic ministries, but they weren't prophets. They had prophetic ministries. Prophets, as Ephesians 4.11 says, are, are designed by God to equip the body of Christ under works of service. And so people with a prophetic ministry give a lot of words, but they don't necessarily develop rising prophets. Prophets develop rising, I should say, they don't develop rising prophetic ministers, and they don't help people understand the gift of prophecy. Prophets raise people whether to a prophetic ministry or ultimately to the office of prophet. But remember, if you use the criteria I've just said, nobody can give you these supernatural experiences except God himself. Mm -hmm. Adam, you want to add to sure, that? What about, about the ministry of the New Testament prophet? So I, I think there's, again, there's a lot of nuance that can be brought to this discussion. And, and there's, we, we could have five more episodes to try to unpack this a little bit further. <laughs> and then we get into how that breaks down between different denominations and their practice of leadership structure. But if we, if we just try to narrow it, um, and this again, this is why I like to try to make distinction between new and old, not because I don't think there's overlap. I think there's a great deal of overlap, Agreed. but because there are some things in the new covenant that the old didn't have to concern itself with, right? right. The old Testament prophet was not going to come necessarily and do life in the temple with all of the people, right? That's just not typically the vibe we get. We get That's them right. showing up. We get people running for the hills. Are you with us? Are you against us? What are you doing? Right. But in the new covenant, that's not the role of a prophet. Right. We see Ephesians 2, 3, and 4, and I think this is the thing that gets lost so often in the prophetic ministry and why I think a lot of our prophetic ministry is unbalanced. We have Ephesians 2 where it talks about laying the foundation, Ephesians 3 where it talks about revealing the mystery, and then Ephesians 4 where it talks about equipping the body, right? And it goes apostles and prophets for 2 and 3 and then the full fivefold for Ephesians 4. 
And there's something that needs to change, I guess. And so let me also do this. We see in Acts that prophets are used to establish and call out ministry. We see Agabus showing up with personal prophetic words. We see Agabus showing up and, and giving a, a predictive word of a famine and calling for offerings that are then taken by the church. So we see a lot of overlap, right? We see Jesus predicting things into the future. I know some people don't like to use him as the example because he's Jesus. That's We'll unpack that at different times. But we do see this showing up. Right? But then in Ephesians 2, 3, and 4, we see this neat thing that I think is often overlooked, which I'll use for sake of semantics, the pastoral calling of a five-fold prophet. Right? And so uh, you, we've used gift, ministry, and office, and I'll, and I'll stay in that vernacular. Ministry, uh, you know, prophetic ministry, you can be an itinerant and have prophetic ministry. Be called places to lay hands, do presbytery, you could be received as a prophetic voice. But when you're actually sitting in, in a governing role, Right. So when we say government, government within the kingdom, within the church, within a local body, governing that set, then your your job is not just giving prophecies. You're supposed to be able to accurately handle the word of God and lay forth the foundation that is Christ. Paul's basically going, they need to have the capacity to teach. You need to be able to unveil the mystery. What is the mystery that the Gentiles have been brought in and grafted into that which was Israel's? So you need to be able to teach what is the ingrafting and what does all that mean and what are the promises of the people of God now into the new covenant unto those that were not, or at least at one time were far off. You need to be able to handle both of those. If you can't, you're technically disqualified by Paul. Then we get to Ephesians 4. If we really want to go further, now you actually have to be able to show me who you're equipping, who you're raising up, who you're bringing into maturity, who you're doing life with, right? We don't ever talk about this. And so by default, prophets are our most weird our most strange and our most talkative. But there should be this place where like, before you get to be given the mic and before, can you handle the word of God? Can you teach? If you went, if you went right now and just took, a, let's say we took the modern charismatic swarth of prophetic books and we held up, let's say the last hundred years, we'll give it 50 years because there's not enough time, 50 years. And then we go to, let's say the first century of Israel, you know, the first century of the church. And let's look at the first 50 years of writing. And let's compare Ignatius and the modern stuff or Polycarp. And you're going to find that the prophetic doesn't teach Christ anymore. It's not rooted in Christ. It's all about extra things and fluff. And But the, the actual role of a prophet is to root people in Christ, to root them in doctrine, to root them in truth, or, or else it's just experience. And I think that's the, the, the thing that's killing the modern prophetic movement. It's an experiential movement. It's not a rooted movement. I think that's really good. I think that Love that, that Love. Uh, experience is important. We don't want to throw that out because we have only, you know, recovered that, especially with the charismatic movement, we recovered uh, experience, but you can't make a, an entire doctrine and theology out of your experience. It has to be rooted in scripture. I love that you talked about uh, being able to teach. So um, I think uh, someone who would would be called as a prophet needs to know their Bible. <laughs> it would be good. Uh, it would be good not only to uh, have a foundation in scripture, but understand basic hermeneutics. So you know how to actually interpret scripture by scripture. And you're not just taking a passage and you're plucking it out and making it say something that corroborates what you're prophesying, but was never meant that? to but, say that. Yes, please. I, yeah. I just, cause you're on that point. I think this is just an interesting caveat. 
there's a thing amongst modern Pentecostals, uh, and really it goes back into classic Pentecostalism, that is very anti-scholarly. It's rooted in the experiences of Seymour, it's rooted right. in the history of our movement, right? So That's there's right. this thing amongst many prophets to say, I've gotten this revelation from no one, me and my Bible and prayer, right? Yeah. The problem with that logic, which again, I, I'm not saying God can't meet you, speak to show you the text. Nowhere in the practice of Christianity until very modern times was someone allowed to say something that foolish like you 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 didn't say you, you would always go back to we found this in the scriptures i i learned this from christ this was passed down and taught and i realized sometimes that the pentecostal movement's like yeah but then the catholic church ruined everything they gave this weird like anti-history thing right aside from that just poor reading there, there was always this expect, expectation that within the tradition, you would be taught how to handle the scripture. And that outside of Paul's very unique situation where he said, I presented this to no man and I went alone. And then he comes back anyways and still presents it. This idea of reading the text, just you and prayer and the Holy Spirit with no interaction with tradition, the fathers, theology, you mentioned hermeneutics, that is... That is a very modern thing, and it has created a lot of chaos. And there's a great deal of cults that have emerged in the earth because of that kind of teaching. Well, yes, and there's scripture then quoted to me about I've had people quote to me that, you know, but you have need, no need of anyone mm -hmm. to teach you because the Holy Spirit will yeah. tell you all things. I say, oh, okay, but, you know, you... It also says, let's be those who handle the word of God rightly. And you're not handling the word of God rightly. And you can't have one passage and not all the passages. And so mm -hmm. that's the way that really goes. But I want to go back to something that you said, because I can hear a question coming up uh, regarding that. Because you said that a prophet, that in the office of prophet, ought to be able to teach about the mysteries and the and the various uh, scriptural things that that go along with covenant, because I would say that an office prophet and an Ephesian four prophet is calling the church continuously into covenant with Christ into the new covenant. And that would be the difference between old and new, uh, new Testament, uh, prophets for me, I would say that you are calling into the appropriate covenant and, uh, and calling them on things that are breaking covenant with God, you know, whether it is a people group or depending on your sphere of influence and where God has placed you. And so, um, those are some of the things I would say, but, but the, uh, the issue of teacher, I can hear someone saying, but Adam, I don't have the gift of teaching. So, so to, to just respond to that, and then I really want to see what Ken has to say, because we went down a whole scriptural thing and I watched him pull up and start to go like this. So I know his uh -huh. gun is loaded. Um, <laughs> but it, but I, 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 this idea that I don't have the gift of teaching, um, that the gift of teaching is a prophetic gift. Ready? I mean, just, let me just unpack this a little bit. People don't like this. There's supposed to be a great deal of overlap between teachers and prophets, and it's been lost because we stop telling teachers to imagine and we stop telling prophets to get rooted. And we told prophets to imagine and teachers to be rooted, but that is not actually the right way to do things. You're supposed to train against your weakness. 
And so most of the time in the prophetic, we only train on the weird things or the mystical or the dream or the vision. The prophet doesn't need a ton of help in that. That, that comes by the sovereign hand of God in grace. What the prophet needs help in is the things that the other four offices offer. They need help in emotional intelligence and how to treat people from the shepherd. They need help in presentation from the evangelist because they will make fools of themselves with the lost. They need help from the teacher with knowing that some things they dreamed are from pizza and not from Jesus because it's against yes. the doctrine of the church. And they need help right. from apostles so they know how to do anything. Like how to do, how to not just be blown by every wind and issue. An apostle takes a prophet and says, "Hey, here's our task. This is this is the field we're working in," and they focus them in to the task rather than just everything they get. But when they're alone and they go, "Well, I don't have the teaching, or I'm not called the shepherd," um, it's crazy because to be an elder in the church is you have to be able to teach. So to have anybody well, yes. in the church, you have to be able to teach. Yes. Uh, yes, absolutely. You don't like it, I, but that's I, Paul. <laughs> <laughs> well, and you know, I think what this speaks to too, which is really a pet peeve of mine, as you know, because you know me, you've known me for for a while now. But um, that I don't think that that uh, being called as a prophet, I don't think that the thing that you're relegated to do is personal spontaneous prophecy. You know, I, I, I think that you are able to do that. I, you have a capacity to do that. And, and of course I, I want to speak, you know, I personally, and I know every prophet that I know has a desire to encourage the body as individuals and corporately. However, uh, there are other aspects to the call and the role of a prophet in the new Testament that, that is far and beyond, uh, personal prophetic words and having a line of 140 or 600 people standing in front of you waiting for a personal prophetic word in, instead of, and dare I say, uh, teaching them how to go to the Lord themselves and hear about their lives, which is equipping the body of Christ as well. So Ken, I know that you've been, you want to jump in here and talk about the teaching and the it's between the Holy Spirit and me. And uh, so go ahead and let's let's hear what you have to say. We we could see it on you. Well, I mean, I I, I love what is being said here. So I don't have a lot of uh, I don't have anything really at variance. I just have things to add. Yeah, it's it's been my opinion for a long time that when we speak of these fivefold ministry offices from Ephesians four eleven, you know. Again, apostle, prophet, evangelist, pastor, teacher, or some people say shepherd, and some people want to say the shepherd is the teacher. They're not distinct. They're one and the same. So I guess then you'd have a fourfold ministry. But I've thought for a long time that all of these are simply flavors of eldership. Um, it's a little bit like going down to Baskin Robbins and, you know, do you want mint chocolate chip or do you want butterscotch or do you just want plain chocolate? But um, and so what does this really mean? Well, let's talk about it functionally. So apostles function largely as initiators or renewers. And the reason I say renewers is because we see in the book of Acts that Barnabas and Paul or Saul later becomes Paul. But anyway, they go and visit these various churches in Galatia that they previously started. And they go and they strengthen them. And Paul says in his letter to the Romans, 
I've longed to come to you that I might impart to you some spiritual gift. That's to say we might be mutually encouraged by each other. Well, you know, it's almost like Paul catches himself and he's like, ah, I shouldn't have quite put it that way. But but clearly he believes he has something to give them. And he also clearly did not initiate that church. It was pre-existent prior to his arriving in Rome. So the apostolic function is not purely that of planting churches or initiating things. It can be to, shall we say, top up the tank or bring some new emphasis or a new gifting. That's what Paul seems to be speaking about in Romans. Um, all of these are what apostles do. Prophets are kind of visionaries. And, you know, I know just from my life in corporate, uh, there are some people who are very, they're very creative. They come up with all kinds of ideas of what we could do. New product development is kind of a prophetic function in the high technology community. But but people who have ideas don't always do a good job starting companies. And uh, there are lots of people who start companies. I'm thinking right now of a gentleman I worked with. He wouldn't really be known to most of our, our listeners, so I won't name him. But you wouldn't have to look far to, to search this out. He was a uh, he was a brilliant designer of microchips, and he wanted to start a semiconductor company, but he wasn't all that good as a leader uh, and administrator. Now, I'm not saying he was he was lousy. I'm just saying that wasn't really his highest and best gift. And so he teamed up with another guy and formed a semiconductor company that grew to become one of the largest semiconductor companies in the world. No, it's not Intel. No, it's not advanced micro devices, but I ended up working for this company. But interestingly, when I got there, he was not the CEO. He was the CTO, the chief technical officer, because that really fit his gift mix a little better. Mm -hmm. So prophets kind of have that visionary. Uh, this is where the Lord is taking us. This is what I see coming. This is the burden of God in the now. And and the the apostle will be the person who initiates that or somehow brings that and fills the tank with it, to use what I already said. What are evangelists? They're basically the salespeople. They're the outward-facing arm of the church. And, I mean, you, you got to bring people in, right? That's what we're called to do that. But it, remember, all of these five offices are training people. They don't just do it. They do do it. You can't be doing these five offices if you don't fulfill the function also. But they have the ability to impart and to steward it and to pass it on and raise up more people of like kind. So that's what evangelists do. And it isn't always just purely get up on a stage and preach. Uh, it could be done house to house. Paul says he preached the gospel house to house. It could be done in small Bible studies on a college campus. I mean, there's a lot of ways that, that can happen. So, all right, again, we can say a lot here. I'm just trying to give people a sense. What does yeah. a shepherd or a pastor do? Well, this is kind of the maintenance and repair function of, and you know, every organization, every corporation also has that. These are the people that kind of make sure everything's done right. And uh, human resources is not most people's favorite part of a corporation, but in some ways they fulfill this function. They make sure people's vacation gets taken care of. They get their raises on time. If they're eligible for various, you know, perks and whatnot, they get their perks. All right, that's that's kind of what the pastoral function does. And in so many ways what pastors do is is they care for the sheep they they take the burrs out of their wool and they uh, you know they help them stay on the path and if they're straying they go look for them and they lead them back to good pasture and water them and so forth and what are teachers 
in a lot of ways, teachers are the moral conscience. They're, they're kind of like the comp compliance and legal department of, of a corporation because they say, look, this is what it says. This is what it means. This is what we have to hold fast to. And I'm not saying these things can't, I'm not saying each one it can't function alongside of the others. They can't, they can also overlap. The, the Adam yeah, said prophets and teachers are actually very close together. Samuel was a powerful teacher of the word of God. He taught all Israel the Torah because they'd been through this period of the judges where basically nobody knew the word of God. Mm -hmm. And yet Samuel was a prophet. And we you know, see this exhibited in various passages of scripture, including where he gives that unbelievable word to Saul about what's about to happen to him. And then the spirit's going to fall on him and then he'll be, you know, he'll have yeah. the anointing to be king. So these five roles are different flavors. And depending on who you are, you may lean towards being a visionary or a compliance and checking function or an initiator. But listen, if you're in an, in a, in an eldership type role, you might cross some of these boundaries at different times. It's just more a question of what, what, when people first think of you, what do they think of? Not that you're not doing these other things. And if you understand it that way, and, and by the way, get rid of the pyramid that says apostle is on top. So we all stop climbing to the top and stepping on people and, and dwelling in ambition. What? Think of it as a round table with five people seated around a round table. There is no head at a round table. There's just five people around a table. And depending on maybe the time in the church, uh, and I mean literally over decades or maybe centuries, one role could be emphasized for a period of time more than another because of the work that God is engaging in within the body of Christ. So, you know, these days everyone's emphasizing apostles and prophets because those two roles seem to be under restoration and they were largely forgotten for centuries. Mm -hmm. uh, but in the Reformation, what was really emphasized, not so much prophecy, but teaching because we had to mm -hmm. recover the Bible. And so all of these things, they, they, they kind of have their place. And that's not just true in like the big picture of the entire body of Christ. I think it's also true in a particular congregation. For a period of time, we might need somebody to be an initiator or to you know, kind of steer mm -hmm. things in a new direction. A, a church that does know evangelism, they need some evangelists to come in and train people to evangelize and get a burden for evangelism. If a church has no real pastoral function, people aren't being healed, they're not being interhealed, they're not being delivered of their evil spirits, they need some really good pastors to come in and help do that. Mm -hmm. So this can be a thing at the local level too. All right, I'll shut up. <laughs> well, I do think you said something a, a couple of weeks ago when we were just uh, talking, the three of us, that it's actually okay for people to be a Christian and not be a prophet or right. an apostle or a t The thing is, is that not everyone in the body of Christ is a five-fold office holder. And I think that we have to understand that too. So if you are prophetic, which is what, we, what we've been talking about here, we're talking about prophets now, but if you are prophetic, if you have, if you, uh, if you prophesy, that doesn't, that doesn't, that, that is not the sign that you are a prophet with an office. And so, you know, I think that's really important. And I think it's also important, the thing that you brought up about more like a round table. And Adam, I want to hear from you on this because I think that somewhere along the way we have, we have come to a point where, you know, of course, 
uh, where we have developed some kind of celebrity culture. And because of the hierarchy that we think about, you know, then we have a lot of, you know, well, I, I'm an apostle, I'm a, I'm a prophet. And because it's the top of the food chain, you know, so to speak. And so as though there's a ladder to climb uh, in, in, in the governance, because it makes you more important and that fulfills something in you. But you, you've spoken to me before about the plurality of governance that really is supposed to be in the church. Can you talk to me just a little bit about that? And then we're going to move on. Yeah, no. Um, so I want to maybe if I can bring sort of summation to some of the things that Ken just produced. And sorry, I had to take my headphones off. It was getting weird in my ears. But um, right. the, uh, the fivefold, just to run it, apostles govern, prophets guide, evangelists gather, shepherds guard, teachers ground. Right. And so that gives you just sort of a nice surmising. And if you think about how do you like, well, how do I know which one I am? When apostles walk into a room, they're looking for leaders. When prophets walk into a room, they're looking for people that are out of alignment. Usually they're looking for sin or truth, like those types of things. When an evangelist walks into a room, they're looking for souls. When a shepherd walks into a room, they're looking at hearts. When a teacher walks into a room, they're looking at minds. And so there, this is going to give you some idea of how, and, and again, these things overlap. They have different relations, but it's worth seeing this. Now, if I have in, in a local congregation, let's say I'm in the senior pastor model, fine, fine. The need for hierarchy has been around since the Catholic Church, and, and we're going to keep playing part with it probably for a long time. So, all right, we have our senior guy. He's the top guy. Well, at this point, we've recognized now that that one person cannot do everything, right? They can't. And for using the, the metaphor before of, of flavors of ice cream, they might be mint chocolate chip, and they might be the baddest mint chocolate chip on earth. But if you eat mint chocolate chip every day, all day long, all week long, every week, every month, at some point you're going to go to a different church because you just want vanilla or you want chocolate or you want, you know. And, and so by default, what do we do? Well, we have to add to or bring into this dynamic team leadership. Now, we've also seen this because the other metaphor was used was business. Well, business used to be mom and pop shops. You owned a business. You owned one thing. Your sons ran it. If you had enough sons, it got bigger, but that's how you did it. Well, nowadays, we don't have to do that. Well, what do we do? Well, we have people that have, you know, maybe they're idea people, as was used before. And then we have other people that know how to put systems into place and all these different roles. Well, even like here at the branch, one of the things that's neat is we have, you know, four leaders that are here. And we have, you know, Dr. Nick Goff, and, and, and Nick carries a number of different overlaps. He has an evangelistic thing that I've seen nothing like in the prophetic. He has a prophetic overlay. And then he also has this dynamic where he's really a father, and he's helped grow churches and build churches and pastor pastors. So there's an apostolic thing there, right? Well, then I'm with him, and I have this really heavy teaching thing and this prophetic thing. And so there's that that layer that met, you know meets with his. And then you have someone like Rob and his wife who has really sort of this apostolic type functioning, but it's, it, it really shows itself in logistics and systems and processes, right? So there's that brilliance that she brings to the thing. Then you have my wife and my wife has this sort of prophetic thing on her, but it also leans more towards shepherding and inner healing. And then she has this eye for the creative. And so well, with the four of us, well, now all of a sudden you have this person like my wife doing design, wants to meet with people, pray with people, doing her healing. You have Robin making sure that literally this system, everything runs, like, like everything. You have me going, hey, what does the doctrine say? What's the teaching? Challenging people to go deeper. You have Nick going, hey, let's get the lost. Let's make sure we're preaching good doctrine. Let's make sure we're ministering and, and encouraging people. And, and, and now in just a very small church, you have all of these different flavors. And I think if we're doing it right, we're bringing more people on board so that our churches can meet the need of a community um, and not just make people like one leader. 
right? Not cookie cutter, but instead we can start mentoring people to their strengths, to their distinctions and helping even their weaknesses. I think, yes, absolutely true. What about, what am, what about among profits? Is there, are there levels? So I want to go back for a minute to the governing versus government question, because we, we, have brought that up in a number of different ways, you know, and so uh, you both mentioned how uh, apostles govern, and um, and I think that's true. Can a prophet govern? And does being in office automatically mean that you have a governmental gift? Ken, you want to go first in this? Ask the question one again, Kim. I want to make sure I've, I've got it right before I launch out on a <laughs> The question that I'm asking is, if you have if you have been given an, uh, a, a, a prophetic office, if you are in the office of a prophet, you have a call to be a prophet, does that mean that you are a governing gift? Does it mean that you automatically have have a, have a government position? Um, it could mean that you are moving toward that but it doesn't necessarily mean that you are automatically that. You know, again, I'm going to go back to corporate life. It, 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 there are many similarities here, and I think they're, they're quite apt. Um, in a corporation, most corporations, it, it's a little different on Wall Street. The titles vary. But, but anyway, in general, in a, in a modern functioning corporation, you usually have what's called the, uh, the executive committee, and generally this will be all the C-level officers. So the chief executive officer, the chief financial officer, the chief information officer, the chief technical officer. There might be some others too, chief human resources officer, et cetera. Um, now they have a chief diversity officer. That's a newer one that's come about just in the last couple of years. But anyway, that's kind of your, that's kind of your, your executive committee is the governing body of the corporation plus the board of directors who don't work for the company. Um, but below them, you have often very highly titled and highly compensated individuals. For example, senior vice presidents. Uh, sometimes we have a level above the senior vice president, but not all the way to an executive vice president. All those names I just threw out, typically those will have an executive vice president or a president or a CEO title. That's, and there's only one CEO and one president. Everybody else is an EVP. Below that, you have SVPs or senior vice presidents. And depending on the company, some of them have between the SVP and the EVP, they have a corporate vice president, which is a higher title even than senior vice president. But it's not all the way to executive vice president. And below the senior vice president, well, you might have a vice president. And I've worked in companies where they had VP1 and VP2. So you have these different levels there. And then below that, you've got directors and managers and you know, worker bees and whatnot. Okay. And, and they all have names for their jobs too, but I'm just trying to give you a sense of governance structure. Who, who really sets the pace for the company? Well, the management team, which is the C-suite, but they often do it with input from the people that are like senior vice presidents, corporate VPs, if they have them, VPs, because they want to know you guys are closer to the customer. You're closer to the supply chain. You're closer to the, you know, the money markets. If, if we need, if we need cash. So, you know, they, they will, they will take the input of those individuals, but all of that decision-making goes on up here. 
well, you generally don't get to be an executive vice president sitting on the C-suite or sitting in the C-suite on the management team unless you've made your way up the pyramid through director, VP12, senior VP, corporate VP. And this is really just the process of maturation that we're talking about. And so sometimes people, they think they should be promoted sooner and they leave the company and go find a new job. Um, in the kingdom of God, you, there are no real shortcuts. You know, you, you, if, you're, if your maturity is such, then God will place you into a, a role or, and put you on a track that will bring you ultimately to where you are intended to be. And so this idea of, you know, governing profits at 18 years of age, I personally have a struggle with that because I think the term elder implies some amount of age. I don't know exactly how much there needs to be, but, but I think a teenager is the wrong answer. Could they have amazing gifts and blow people away with the words they get? Absolutely, they could do that. But that doesn't mean yet that they're there. We see this played out in the movie Star Wars, which I know there's a lot of risks in using Star Wars as an illustration. But who do we have? And we've got this uh, we've got this individual, Anakin Skywalker, and he's amazingly gifted as a Jedi Knight. And, you know, he's under tutelage to Obi-Wan Kenobi. And he keeps saying, they won't put me on the Jedi Council. They refuse to recognize my gifts. Well, right there is a lot of young people who might well be on their way to becoming a prophet. But if they let that rancor, that bitterness, that anger, that ambition rise up within them, they will turn to the dark side. Woo. Adam, you have something more to say. And I have a question for you, Ken. Are you... Are you able to come back next week so we can really finish this conversation? Because <laughs> we're already coming to the end of it's our never-ending conversation. <laughs> it, it really, it really is. But uh, I'm gonna, I'm gonna wrangle you in on on that. And uh, but Adam, go ahead and speak to this, and uh, and then we're gonna sort of bring this down, and uh, we'll come back uh, next week and. Uh, talk about it some more because I have more questions to ask. Let you. me just say one last thing on that before Adam responds, because it, it, it's really relevant. Yeah. As you move up the, the, the pyramid in a corporation and you get to higher and higher titles and levels, um, it is assumed, and very few people are going to sit you down and tell you this, it is just assumed that as you move into these senior levels of management, you represent the company all the time you carry their values and i mean i'm i'm aware of situations from my own career where senior level executives evps svps corporate vps all people you know people like this at times even ceos they are fired from their jobs why because of some indiscretion that occurred in a restaurant or at a resort somewhere or whatever and they say you don't represent this company well this isn't what we want our shareholders to think of this is not what we want our customers and our suppliers to think of you can't do this and that is itself sufficient reason for you to be dismissed from your role and there is a very analogous kind of thing go that goes on as we talk about the character and nature of what it means to be in some sort of governing role in the body of christ and this is why Paul says, lay hands, on haste, lay hands hastily on no man. And, you know, we don't just want to put people into these kinds of uh, positions 
too soon. They need to be tested. Paul says elders must first be tested. How do you test them? Time, you see them in a lot of circumstances. You see how they act in situations that require patience and charity, where they have to overcome temptation, where they've got to make good decisions under pressure. I mean, all of these things go on in raising people in corporations and planning succession. And it's the, the issues may be a little different, but the process is very, very similar in the church. So I'm hearing you say that, uh, and then I'm going to give it over to you, Adam. I promise, because I know take you're your, just you're your you're you're locked and loaded. Um, <clears throat> I'm hearing you say that that uh, that governance in the church, governing in the church, is a process by which you grow into you grow and are developed, and as you are more and more trusted, and as your character is seen, then we put you into a governing role. And, um, and, and you can be fired, which <laughs> you can be fired for that job if you're not representing the Lord and representing the entity, uh, well, the body well. So yes, um, I think I, the other question that I have is when you are called as a prophet, are you, do you automatically have a gift for governing and for government, I see you nodding your head, which is what I also want to get at. Um, do you automatically have a gift for leadership? And uh, does that automatically come with that? So, Adam, would you speak to that, please? Yeah. Um, wow. So I'm going to try to do this quickly and, and try to hit all this because I realize we're at the end of this. Um, the answers to your questions are inherently no. Um, governance and leadership are things that you need to be trained in and develop um, in my own story. So I'll use my own process and journey. Uh, there was a season in, in my life where I, I had the opportunity of being an, an elderly, elder, elderly, 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 however phrasing leader, right? So I was one of the elders. There's a better way to say it. Um, and in that role, I was over overseeing the prophetic ministry of the church. And in our church, we had other prophets, some of which had been in prophetic ministry and ordained as prophets longer than I'd been alive, right? And so in this dynamic, I was in this role of elder. And I had these people on my team who were senior to me, more gifted, more, more ability, more history with God. And one of the things that happened there is they would, and this is one of the signs of their maturity, they recognized the grace that was on my life to lead and did not challenge and buck me in that role. But I also recognized that they had been hearing God longer than I'd been imagining that God existed. And so I didn't just ignore what they had to say. I would go to them often. Then outside of that, we had some other prophetic voices, younger people coming up either with prophetic calls or just prophetic gift. We had a couple of mystics. I had my, one of my favorite guys. Like he would be in the back walking and pacing back and forth, having visions. And I'd go back and be like, what's Jesus showing you? And sometimes I'd be like, take the mic and tell everyone. And sometimes I'd be like, let me just unpack that a little bit. Right. Because we had different levels of function and flow and they honored one another. I think also into that point um, in my own life, I think I was put into that position too early. Right. Too gifted, too much knowledge, history, teaching, doctrine, blah, blah, blah. And I wasn't ready for it. And so there were places where it tested and it exposed me. And funny enough, even as we talked about this, uh, I didn't represent my community well and I had to be put out from my community. Now, that's something we don't like to say in these calls. Right. But that's what happened. And I had to spend years sitting down and, and getting work and, and figuring out what was out of line, what was out of balance in my own heart and in my own life. And so it's easy to talk about this and say about it. But like what happens when you don't steward your call well? 
or what happens when you're put into governance too early. And, and so when I'm speaking about these things, I'm not just speaking about them as like a nice idea. I'm speaking about them as someone who has seen the damage of being too young and mature, um, too compromised to really be in a position of governance and yet had this call and had this gifting and had understanding and had teaching, but there was some testing that still needed to happen. Right. And, and so I think um, it is it is unwise to aspire to an office call. It is unwise to think and say, I want to be a prophet because God is going to take you places and he's going to deal with you. And, and if you won't deal with yourself. Right. Because that's the other thing we don't talk about. Just as the call comes to the prophet by itself, so do the dealings of God. And he will always come to you first and say, get this in order or get this in line. And if you ignore him. Right? And this is what we don't talk about. He will then bring those things up and show that you're not qualified to sit in those places. And so I, I think in this whole conversation, right, as, as someone that's been put back into a place of authority and haven't been out of it, it's really not something we should be so ha haphazard about. That passage there and it says lay hands on no man hastily or suddenly, it literally means lay hands on no green leafed one, right? This idea that as a tree branch, you haven't been through enough winters yet to be hardened and able to weather the storm. And so if I lay hands on you, you might bow under the pressure. You might fold when things get hard. And so uh, again, everyone's trying to climb this ladder of national clout and, 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 yes. and ministry and stages and opportunities. And I'll be honest, you can get up to places that you think are stages and find out they are gallows. And, uh, and the things in you that you didn't deal with in hiding, God will bring to the light. And so I think there's some places for us to pull back and say, wait a second. Do I meet these criteria? Do I have leaders and voices speaking to my life? Am I meeting with the other members of the fivefold outside of just other prophetic types? Am I being mentored? Am I being matured? Am I being, uh, am I being faithful to this process? Because if not, I'm going to hurt people and, and ultimately I'm going to get hurt myself. Yeah, I know that we could all add add our own stories to that and uh, and corroborate what exactly what you're saying. And I think that that is such wisdom and such great advice. And uh, and we have all been a part of even churches that have lifted up uh, some uh, younger and I and I don't necessarily mean younger in age, but younger in character, uh, those who are super gifted. And then only to see them fall or to see them hurt others and damage uh, what is going on in the church. And of course, you know, God is able to mend and reconcile and redeem and all of that. But uh, I think we need to be more careful. And uh, and I think that this that this uh, point in our conversation is such a great place for us to bring it, land the plane and come back next week because there are. Uh, it brings up those questions about character and development and things like accountability, which have become like a bad word, you know, uh, in the church. And, um, and I, but I think that we're there now. I think that we're seeing how some, uh, uh, the place that we have come to in, in the prophetic movement, especially, and in, with some of the things that have gone on that we are needing to be more careful about that. So gentlemen, Friends, thank you so much for being with me and having this amazing conversation. And uh, and I'm so thankful that you both are willing to come back one more time and and finish out this this uh, conversation so that there will be three episodes uh, when we talk about the 
prophet, not just prophetic ministry or the gift of prophecy. So thanks everybody for joining us. I'm so glad that you have been with us at this in this time. Uh, bring, come back next week for sure. If you haven't heard the other the the last week's episode, please go back and listen to that so that you can get a feel for everything that we've talked about. And we'll see you again next week on Move Forward with Dr. Kim Moss. Thank you for joining us for the Move Forward podcast. We would love for you to rate this podcast and share it with a friend. You can connect with Dr. Kim on social media. For those links and more, visit her website, kimmoss.com. Host Dr. Kim Moss leads Kim Moss Ministries and Women of Our Time. She is the author of Prophetic Community, The Way of the Kingdom, Facing Ziklag, and The Four Questions. You can find both books on Amazon. Remember, never throw away your confidence. It is time to move forward.